I quoted it on Friday at uh, the Master's University. Jesus said, he who believes on the Son has life. Not just living and breathing, but they're experiencing the life of God which characterizes heaven. I like to say this because I think we often misunderstand eternal life is not just the length of life. It's a quality of life. It's the life of God that you get to enter into through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a life that you can only possess if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ. He that has the Son has life. There is life indeed, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You're helping me with that. Deep sound behind me. Can you all hear that too? Okay, so I I can live with it if you don't hear it. It sounds like I'm rumbling. But I see you feverishly working, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm glad I don't have to do it. Um, He that does not have the Son, he who does not believe, and here's a key statement, Jesus, and obey. Obey what? The call to repent and believe does not have life, does not enjoy the life of God, lives without hope and without God in the world, lifeless, and the wrath of God abides, present tense, on him. Now, how would you like to be in the world today, created in the image of God, and have the wrath of God abide on you? If you want to calibrate your reality, everybody that you work with, everybody that you know, friends and family, who does not believe and obey the call to trust and repent, endures today the wrath of God and the loss of life that's truly life. That's why what we do matters when you declare the truth in love. God created the world for good and for his glory. What happened in Genesis chapter 3, it was damaged by evil and by choice. And the only antidote to that pandemic of corruption and sin and death is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth that sets men free. Homosexuals are not flourishing. Sexually confused people are not flourishing. They're not living. They're enslaved and in bondage. Greedy, idolatrous people need to be converted. They need to be born again. They need to be changed. And the only means to that is the power of God unto salvation, which is rescue and deliverance through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest failure, the greatest failure that a parent or a church can express or produce is the failure to deny people who need life the knowledge of how to have that life. You can unintentionally 
mislead someone in one of the greatest, if not the greatest category of reality they need to know. Their condition before God and the solution to that condition. We spent a week this past week at Masters talking about strategic tools and tactics in order to engage the lost because the lost need to be saved. They don't need to just be reformed. They don't need to do life better and have a richer marriage. They need to be transformed. So this Sunday, and we do have men all over the world who are opening God's word today, and it is defiance to sometimes the law, but certainly to the culture. And there are consequences. So listen, not only for John MacArthur in our pulpit today, and I think you, like I, can get used to a guy who we're not worried about whether he has the courage to tell the truth. But a lot of men need the strength of heart and the compelling conviction that the Lord is with them as they do what they do today, and there may be consequences this week for them. So I want to encourage you to pray. Matter of fact, I'm going to lead us in prayer for our pastor and those who do what he does, that God will enliven their heart. I, uh, I had turned earlier just thinking about this to Joshua 1, and this is what Joshua heard from the captain of the Lord's host, have I not commanded you? The things that I've asked you to do were prescriptive. Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is with you wherever you go. Isn't that a good word? So join me. Let's pray that the men who preach the truth and those of you who endeavor to live the truth in the marketplace of life will have that courage. Father, I thank you this morning for the treasure of the truth. I thank you for the revelation of reality in the word of God. We're not wondering why things are the way they are. And we're grateful for the compass, the calibrating revelation that helps us think and live. And Lord, our culture is twisted, crooked. Lord, we pray today that men of God and the people of God will speak the truth in love. They would declare with confidence the revelation of the word of God that sets men free. They will declare the reality that rebellion and disobedience is consequential. Lord, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, not just the grave, but eternal separation and punishment in hell. Lord, there is no life without the truth. Inspire the men who preach it today. I pray for Pastor John that... Lord, you would strengthen him. He would have a felt sense of your presence, your with him experience. Lord, we're grateful for his evident and manifest courage, and we pray that you would strengthen him today, for without you, no one, including John MacArthur, can do anything. 
So for every man who proclaims the truth and for our pastor today, we pray for the inspiration, the anointing, the felt presence of God and the power of God in pulpits today. Delivered from hearts on fire and hearts of compassion for broken people who do what broken people do. Lord, protect them and leverage their voice in life. And then, Lord, for those of us who have gathered here today on this Lord's Day to be equipped, to be challenged, to be nurtured in the truth, I pray that you would inspire us to live the truth we profess to believe. Help us to be what Christian people ought to be. And to that end, we need your help, and we ask for it, even as we open your word in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, James chapter 2. James chapter 2. All right, Eric, you and Tara are probably going to feel like this is deja vu, right? How long has it been since you went to the free state of Texas? Three years, okay? So it was before that that I started the book of James. Is that fair? Okay, and I've made uh, sidebars periodically I am determined, Lord willing, to finish this book. And uh, so this may be my third introduction to the epistle of James. We're going to jump into chapter 2, and I'm going to remind you by way of beginning some of the core headings that we have already covered together. Let's read chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. James, this is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. This is James, the pastor of the largest church in the world at that time, the Church of Jerusalem. What use is it? Use is a key phrase or statement or word in this text. What use is it, my brethren? James is going to use brethren over and over and over again to refer to God's people who he considers family. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, here's that word again, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Why? Being by itself. Verse 18, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, maybe my favorite phrase in the whole book, you foolish fellow, you're not thinking clearly. Are you willing to recognize? Are you willing to own it, acknowledge it, and accept it? You foolish fellow, here it is, that faith without works is useless. 
Listen, one of the greatest things you can do in the world is lead someone to the truth that saves, and one of the greatest failures in your life is to mislead someone as to how to be saved, what is required. The world around us promotes a lot of ideas about how to be saved. What does saving faith involve? What do you have to do to go to heaven? Depending on who you talk to, what theological school they come from, or perspective religiously that they are rooted in, you will hear different answers. Just be the best person you can be. Be faithful to fulfill the sacraments of the church. Believe in Jesus and work. Or just believe and he'll take care of anything whether you work or obey or not. Do the religious stuff and you will see heaven. Listen, the world's perspective on life and the nature of life and the measure of success in life has changed a lot over these days, and the most important thing that you can do is properly educate others on what it means to have saving faith. And one of the greatest things you can do for yourself is to make sure you're not deceived about your faith. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did I not, Matthew said. And they'll rehearse the series of activities that to them gave them confidence. They were bound for heaven. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Tragedy number one is to deceive yourself. Tragedy number two is to deceive someone else. One of the great joys we have at the university is for students who grew up in it to confess that they didn't have it and now do have it. Boast not yourself of tomorrow. You don't know what a day will bring forth. You need to deal with it. Sometimes you resist God because you're in rebellion against God. No, I want to do what I want. And I'll get to that later. That's a presumption you ought not make. But secondly, some of you can think you're okay with God when, in fact, if you measure your life by the truth of God's revealed word, you aren't a Christian. And that's really what James is addressing as the pastor of the church at Jerusalem and the diaspora, the the persecution that distributed God's people, those early converts to Christianity in the city of Jerusalem, all over the world, they were dispersed like seed, missionary seed, and that's part of what the church should be, missionary seed. Wherever you are, you're to be an asset to promote the truth that saves and to communicate what God has done for you. And James, in chapter 1, verse 1, is writing to Hebrew Christians, the 12 tribes, who are dispersed like seed throughout the empire. And his goal is to instruct them as to the characteristics of what I call real Christianity. What are the characteristics of real faith? What are the means that you can measure your life by that will enable you to know that you are a Christian. That's the content of this particular paragraph and the one that follows. 
And what do the evidences, what do they look like in real time that defines real Christianity? Real Christianity, the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. That's how I'd like to entitle James. If you haven't heard me say it, it's my favorite way of saying it. James is calling the people of God to live the truth of God in a way that validates the gospel of God, either in them or for those who watch them. This is genuine faith at work. These are the proofs of genuine and saving faith. That's James 2.18. You may say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. These are the evidences of true faith. This is how real faith works. This is how real Christians ought to live. That's the book of James. It's old probably in the 60s A.D., very early on, the church is dispersed and the pastor of the biggest church exhorts the people of God with a brotherly pathos and also the exhortation of a prophet. These are non-negotiable perspectives you need to own or you ought not call yourself a Christian because this is how a Christian lives. This is the conduct you will be measured by and the conduct by which you should measure yourself by. Look, chapter 2, verse 12, just a couple of verses before chapter 2, verse 14. So speak, says James, and so act as those who are to be judged by the law that produces liberty. The law of God produces liberty, and it will be the assessing the law of love, The prescriptive expectations of God are the measure of your life, and they ought to be by way of what your actions and your speech that you measure yourself by. The work of genuine faith impacts and influences if it's genuine and if it's real. Let me say it this way, another way to put it. Pastor James would say these are truth perspectives. Three key words, for proving, for perfecting, and for evaluating your faith. These are truth perspectives inspired by God to the people of God dispersed like seed for proving, validating, for perfecting your faith. Because what we're going to see in one of these verses is that faith is perfected when it's lived out. When you exercise your faith, you mature it. So these are the things you do that prove your faith, perfect your faith, and it's the standard by which you measure your faith. Are you a real Christian? That's the issue. This is how a real Christian thinks, says James. This is how a real Christian lives. Don't call yourself a Christian if you're not a Christian. The centerpiece of this epistle is chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. It's the hub around which everything else revolves. You can say it, but if you don't live it, it's useless. It doesn't matter. They are just words. No matter how convinced you are of the veracity of those words, unless you have validating evidence, 
It's useless. Oh, foolish. Oh, foolish friends. Oh, foolish people. Foolish fellows. Foolish Grace Church brethren. Oh, foolish fellows. The faith without works is useless. So what are the works? What are the validations? What are the evidences? What are the convictions and lifestyle of a real Christian? Because your faith, one of the big ideas of this book, when it's properly understood, is integrated in all of your life. Faith is not a Sunday thing. Faith is not a religious thing. Faith is not a cultural thing. It's not a way of life. Faith is your life. It shows up at work. It shows up in conversation. It shows up in everything because faith is a all-life expression. And here is how James would unfold in light of this theme. This is how he would say a real Christian thinks and lives. Now, here's my title for today, Inventory. My title today is Inventory, subtitle, Assessing and Challenging Yourself in the New Year. Inventory, I want you to take inventory. The Bible is not just to be known, you know this with me, I want you to live it. Effectual doers, diligent doers, not just enthusiastic note takers. Not just people who know stuff, people who actually apply what they know. Inventory, that's my call to you today. Assessing, evaluating, and then challenging yourself to recalibrate and to advance in the categories that are expected of you as a bona fide believer in Jesus Christ. So you're either going to say, this is me, or it's not me. It's me, but not enough of me. All right, let me give you the highlights of the way the outline runs, and then we'll jump into chapter 2, which is the heart of where we're coming back to. Real Christians. Here's inventory category number one. According to James, this is chapter 1, 1 through 18. Real Christians deal with difficulty differently and successfully. They deal with Trouble outwardly, trials differently and successfully. They deal with material, financial difficulty. You can have too little or too much, says James in verses 9 through 10, and they deal with it. They triumph over the challenges, the temptations, the struggles, the trials that go with having too little financially or too much. And they deal with inward difficulty, temptation, trials, outward difficulty, money, financial difficulty, and inward difficulty, temptation, differently. Let me bottom line with you. Real Christians thematically, consistently triumph over trouble. They deal with it differently, and they deal with it successfully. Genuine faith is proven by how it deals with difficulty. Inventory. One to ten. Ten being I could not possibly be doing any better. 
One, I am abject failure if I'm honest with myself. One to ten, how are you in triumphing over trouble? Inward trouble, material trouble, outward trouble. One to ten, assess yourself. At the end of this lesson, encouragement, study together, I'm going to ask you, because you can't give yourself the gift of perspective, to take a survey. Looking at somebody who knows you, cares about you, hopefully loves you, and say, how do you think I'm doing one to ten? It is not meant to hurt you, but to give you a dose of objective reality, because real Christians, they deal with difficulty differently than the person who's not a Christian. Number two, verses 19 or 18, 19 through 25, real Christians are changed by the word and are changing by the word. The word of truth, verse 18, is the change mechanism that God uses, the means that God uses to transform a life. And real Christians, verse 18, are changed by the truth. And verses 19 through 25 say they are changing by that truth. Because salvation is a point in time and sanctification, the outworking of your salvation is a progression of time. It's not like I become a Christian and then I stop I grow. He who began a good work will continue to perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. Christians mature, or they're not a Christian. Christians are changed by the word of God, and they are changing by the word of God, or they deceive themselves. You might have notebooks full of John MacArthur's sermons. You may be a person because of your memory and the length of time. You can parrot all of the good things you have heard. Doesn't make you a Christian. Because unless that truth is transforming your life, you cannot validate the claim of Christianity simply because you have notebooks full of truth and you can reproduce it in words. It has to be manifest in your life. Inventory, assess yourself. Has the word of God changed me? And is it still changing me? Am I a hearer who deceives myself or am I a diligent applier of the truth I have heard? One to 10, how you doing? Number three, and this is really a subset of number two, but I'm going to say it a different way. Real Christians proactively seek and diligently apply the truth, not just enthusiastically learn the truth. Genuine faith is proven not only by how often it hears the word, but how effectively it applies it. Verses 23 through 25 says the word of God, the inspired revelation of scripture changes you, not just illuminates or educates you. Those are sub thoughts to number two. Number four, verses 26 through 28, real Christians have a religion seen in reality. They walk their worship. 
by controlling their tongue, by visiting the vulnerable, by helping the helpless, and by staying unspotted or unstained from the world. Verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, that's a God-fearer, and yet does not bridle or restrain or restrict or govern his tongue, he deceives his own heart. And watch the end of verse 26. This man's religion is what? Worthless. Because real Christians have a religion seen in reality and they walk out their worship, they control their tongue, they visit the vulnerable, that's verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit, remember, that's a proactive word, head up, eyes open. It's proactive to consider or inquire what the person who's vulnerable because they don't have the support of earthly friends or family, and God is their caregiver, and you're the agent of God to support the work of God for the orphan and the widow in their distress, and you are also committed to keeping yourself unstained from the world. Real Christians visit the vulnerable, help the helpless, stay unstained. I like to say it this way. The garments of real Christianity are charity and purity, not formality. Real religion must be seen in reality or it's not real. It is most obviously and purely displayed when you visit the vulnerable, when you help the helpless, when you live in a holy way, removing yourself from the corrupting toxins of the culture. Look, you live in a world where you're going to get dirty. That's why you ask Jesus to wash your feet. You walk in a dirty world, but you don't knowingly go into the place where the pigs play. Genuine faith is proven by how it talks, by how it proactively cares for the needy, and it avoids worldly compromise. Inventory, how you doing? How's your tongue doing? We're going to get to that in chapter 3 here in a few weeks. It's a little member. It has a lot of horsepower. We all stumble in many ways, James will say. You can manage your tongue. You're living as a mature Christian, but Christians, really religious people, bridle their tongue. One to ten, how you doing? How charitable, how concerned, how careful. One to ten, how you doing? We look at the grocery list of the things you've taken in on your computer screen this week, your search engine the things you've watched on direct TV or whatever, Netflix or whatever your deal is, if we took inventory, unspotted, unstained, yes or no? One to 10. Because real Christians are concerned about the sanctification of their heart. Look, I might be allowed to go certain places, but there are certain places I shouldn't go. Not because it's sinful for me to be there, it is injurious for me to be there. That's why the prayer is, daily prayer, lead me not into temptation, which is keep me out of trouble. 
And if for some reason I get into trouble, please rescue me. But I am not knowingly today going to put myself in harm's way. Can you say amen to that? Because real Christians are preoccupied with sanctification. It brings glory to God. It promotes the purposes of God. But the lusts of the flesh wage war with your soul. And who, who of you knowingly gets up in the morning and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to expose my soul to the enemy so he can challenge me, so he can injure me. I'm going to be like Lot. I'm going down to Sodom and Gomorrah because the plains are fertile there. The business is better there. And you're vexed in your soul because you're exposing yourself unnecessarily to the things that are toxic. Inventory, how you do it. I'm not aiming at legalism. I'm aiming at Christianity that makes sense in light of the purpose for which you've been saved. Real Christians. Chapter 2, 1 through 7 Real Christians treat all people equally and kindly. To do otherwise is a contradiction theologically. Certainly in the body of Christ, we're all heirs. We're family members. We're not defined by how big our house is or how much money we make or how nice our clothes are. We're defined by our common inheritance and heirs as sons and daughters of God. We're in equal footing. We ought to treat each other with equity. No matter what they have or don't have, no matter who knows their name or doesn't know their name, because real Christians recognize equality and are courteous and kind to everybody. Often, James says, verse 6, our abusers are the rich, not the poor. Often, those who are with means blaspheme our firstborn brother, verse 7. And if that's not enough, verses 8 through 12 says, to violate this law of equity, kindness, and generosity violates the law of love by which we will be measured. And I think verse 13 is incredibly, incredibly sobering. And the judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. The mercy that triumphs over judgment is the mercy of God received by the grace of God through faith that you experience. If you're a real Christian, you have been shown magnanimous mercy, mammoth mercy. If you are in any way acquainted with who you are and what you deserved, and you recognize the bountiful benefit and blessing of God to say, Harry, you do not have to pay. The wages of your iniquity, all of it, you don't have to endure any of it. You deserve it, but you don't get it. You know, hell is just. It's hard to imagine Eternal darkness, eternal regret, the lake of fire, longing for somebody to dip their finger and give you a drop for your thirsting tongue, 
the isolation, the remorse, the anguish, the tortured reality that represents hell, do you know that that is justice? It's not the execution of an unmerited outcome. God is just, and if hell is what hell is, it is just recompense or consequence for violating a God who is holy. I am worthy of death eternally. Every one of you, if the Lord tarries, is going to draw your last breath, whatever it is that takes your life. There's somebody's going to gather and call your name and hopefully remember some good things about you, and you're going into a grave. You will die physically. That's happening for all of us. But unless you've received the, magnet, received the magnanimous mercy of God, you're not just dying that first death, you're going to die the second death. And if you've tasted mercy, if you have any clue as to what you deserve and what God has done, the recipients of magnanimous mercy give mercy. In a world of injury and injustice, in a home that you may live in, in a family you may have grown up in where people violate and injure and hurt and harm because of justified self-centeredness. If you're not a grantor of mercy, you've not tasted mercy. And your judgment will be without mercy. But the mercy you receive that real Christians manifest triumphs over that judgment. Real Christians have a faith that is proven when it gives what it has received. That's why I think Jesus is so blatantly plain. If you don't forgive others, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. You know why? You can't be a Christian and having received generous forgiveness and not grant it. Or you ought to ask the question, am I a Christian? I'm so hard on everybody else. Well, there may be a reason you're hard on everybody else. Because you've genuinely not ever entered into what it means to be relieved of the hardness you deserve. Real Christians display magnanimous mercy because they have received magnanimous mercy. Here's another way to say it. Real Christians display this kind of mercy when injured and violated because their heart has naturally and necessarily been changed by receiving the undeserved mercy and grace of God. One to ten, inventory, how you doing? Quick fuse, hold grudges, measure people with a fine microscopic assessment. And then make sure that they get what they deserve. How you doing? Inventory. Number eight, chapter two, verses 14 through 26. Real Christians have a real faith that results in real works. Genuine faith is proven and perfected by the good works it does. Here's the heart of the book. It's where we're going to be this week and next and who knows how much longer. 
Real faith manifests itself in real works. Real faith works, saving and genuine faith is validated, listen to me, by observable works. You say you have faith, show me your works. Did you hear that? The claim doesn't validate itself. The life validates the claim. John Calvin, faith alone saves. It's sola fide. It's faith alone, just like it's grace alone, just like it's Christ alone. But solo, sola fide, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Did you hear that? Never alone. It's a contradiction if it were alone. It's like a tree never bearing fruit. That's why Jesus said, To those who wanted to be baptized, what do we need to do? Bring forth evidence. We call it the fruits of repentance. Saved people manifest a life that evidences that saving conversion. All right. Nine minutes. Saving faith inventory. Here's the faith that saves, according to James, or maybe better put, this is the faith that doesn't save. Number one, the faith that saves, saving faith, it is more than words faith. Saving faith is more than confession of truth and belief or profession. Verse 14 says, if someone says he has faith, emphasis, if someone says, it necessarily, saving faith, involves caring and practical loving your neighbor actions and expressions. Verse 15, here's the illustration. You can make the claim. Can that claim alone save him? No. The words don't make it clear that it's saving. The actions do. Because verse 15 says, if a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and be filled, words, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, actions, what is that? Tell you what that isn't, saving faith. Because saving faith is more than words. Real and saving faith changes, here let me bottom line, changes how you treat people. My daughter-in-law, who just came to faith the last two years, two and a half years, we were sharing our testimony at Thanksgiving, just talking about what Christ has done, and my son-in-law and my daughter-in-law shared their testimony. And Jessica said, you know, one of the biggest changes in me, I started to care about people. Up until then, I really didn't care. And I noticed one of the evidences that transpired in me after I became a Christian is I actually cared. One of the manifest evidences of saving faith is your care for people. Not just your verbalized interests, but your real-time actions to meet those needs. Here's a question for inventory. Is your talk bigger than the care of your walk? Is your talk bigger than the care of your walk? Saving faith involves necessarily 
repenting from sinful and self-interested attitudes and actions. Listen, you can't be selfish as a pattern of life and claim to be a Christian. Look, it's not that Christians aren't selfish and no Christian who's honest with themselves would say, I'm never selfish. When I became a Christian, (laughs) everything changed. It was all about somebody else, not me. That wouldn't be honest. But what have to be true is the pattern and trajectory and theme of my life is other-centeredness, not self-centeredness. It is more than religious professions and religious actions. It is necessarily displayed in charitable actions. You know what charity is? At my expense, I meet a need that you have. Remember the words we read in verses 26 and 27, real religion? Real religion not only controls the tongue, but it considers those who are vulnerable and in need, pure and undefiled religion. Fruits of repentance are manifest in the heart and in the life. Let me read you what Jesus said in Luke chapter 3. I made a slight reference to it when... or John the Baptist, rather, says to those who are coming to him to be baptized. And in Luke chapter 3, the religious leaders came to him, and he began saying to the crowds who were going out, verse 7, to be baptized by him, you're a brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Here's a key verse, verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. You can't just make the claim that I'm in the club. Anybody can make that claim. So verse 10, the crowds were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? Do you see that? Do? Not what shall we say, what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. For he who has food is to do likewise. Transformed fruits of repentance involve necessarily non-negotiably, sharing what you have to bless somebody who doesn't have. Not just because an offering is taken and some deacons in the church will invest in interests that recognize the needs of people. That is a great mechanism. I love being able to entrust my assets to those who will steward them to the best outcome. They'll do the work necessarily to find out the need because they're scammers and they'll do what they need to do to meet that need with the assets entrusted to them. That's what deacons do. But it does not relieve a Christian from seeing a need and having more than one and sharing the more than one that they have. Because real faith in real time is more than words. Charitable actions, other-centered actions, sharing, not just owning it as if it's yours. 
Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, and let me punctuate this, and you see why James has taken me so long, because we got two more of these, and what faith involves, saving faith, it's more than words faith. But I want to read this to you as a parting comment, and this is the the clear teaching of the Apostle John. In the first epistle of John that's written for your assurance, tests by which you can measure your claims, obedience, love, rightful recognition of who Jesus is and what he has done are measuring sticks according to this epistle. The focus on the test of love is in chapter 3. And we begin in verse 14, 1 John chapter 3. We know, says the apostle John, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now look up. You don't have to kill somebody to be guilty of hating somebody. Biblically, hate is the antithesis of love. Hate is, I don't care about you. I don't value you. You are no concern to me. You can't be a Christian and not have concern. And you don't have to take a knife or a gun to quench somebody's life to be guilty of hate. Hate is self-interest. It is self-interest at somebody else's expense. I'm a husband. I'm going to be more interested in me than her. That's not loving. That's the antithesis of loving. Karen's in Arkansas. They had snow in Arkansas yesterday. Three inches. She sent me pictures. That's the way you want to do snow on vacation. (laughs) It was beautiful. But she left me like a page of responsibilities. I have a job. (laughs) There's things that I am entrusted. No, honey, you can't go see your parents. I know they're aging, but you just can't do it because that means I've got to do what you normally do, which is more than you think when you have to do it. James is saying what John is saying, saying that if you know you've passed from death into life because you consider the needs of others as more important than yourself, and to not do so is both injurious and hateful. I want to get to the verse. We know love by this, verse 16. You want a definition of love? Here it is. He laid down his life for us. You know what love is? Sacrificial by definition. For us. Do you remember who the us were when he laid down his life? Peradventure a man will lay down his life for a righteous man, but Jesus laid down his life for while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, Jesus died for us. You know what love is? It's unconditional even to those who don't deserve our generosity. He laid down his life for us, and therefore we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what love is, sacrificial, unconditional, it's practical, it's for us, it figures out what the need is, and it intends to meet that need. Because you know what real Christians are? They're concerned about somebody else. 
Or you know what they're not? Christians. You're not a godly Christian husband if you're not interested in the needs of your wife and your children. You can't make that claim. Oh, you can make it, but oh, foolish fellow, that kind of claim without the work is useless. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Did you hear that? Validating evidence of true saving faith is the way I sacrifice my interests for the interests of someone else. And it's not just Harry's pretty words, it's Harry's life. It's real time, real action. And whatever our heart condemns us, this is an interesting statement. Because sometimes we are a Christian and the accuser of the brethren and our heart will align with the accuser and it'll condemn us because we're not perfect or mature fully in our expression. Whatever our heart condemns us, this will assure our heart, for God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. He knows our heart. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we know that whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments, we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. All right, this is my bottom line for this morning. On ramp to James, digging into the details next week, inventory. Saving faith is more than words. It is other-centered, sacrificial action, even if they don't deserve it. It's seeing a need, and it's endeavoring to meet a need. It's not just acknowledging it. I'm so sorry. Have a nice day. It's Christianity in shoe leather. Real Christians speak and live. Or the faith is not real. It's more than words. Can you say amen? amen? Now, does everybody feel convicted besides me? Me too. Okay. Now, here's the assignment. Here's the assignment. Self-assessment. One to ten. We did eight things today that real Christians ought to model and manifest. Here's the courageous step in your assignment. Hey, one to ten. How do you think I'm doing? That's dangerous unless you want to hear what may be hard to hear. Third step, what do you have to do to bump that up? I'm a seven. What will it take to get me to an eight? Honey, you've given me a three. What will it take to move me up the scale? And if you're, being a, if you're a, a survey responder, be nice. The judgment that you give is the judgment by which you will be judged. Remember that? I thought you would. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for this little epistle with such potency. Lord, it's never wrong to reassess and to calibrate. Lord, we want to take inventory not so that we can make claims, but so that we can make adjustments. And Lord, if we come up short, if the evidence, the real life evidence is insufficient for true salvation, 
for saving faith, would you help us to declare ourselves in need of a change, to be saved and transformed by grace through faith because of Jesus' work, not our own. Help us to repent and believe. To that end, I ask it for us all that we would be real Christians. We'll have a lifestyle manifesting convictions that are blatantly biblical. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.